friends, Greg Kokel here, and I welcome you to our show called Stand to Reason. Uh, this particular broadcast is off schedule. That means no opportunity to call me and offer your questions. And uh, I usually prefer that because then we can interact a bit more. But we do have an alternative that uh, I think is pretty cool. It's worked out for us wonderfully. I wish I could say I'm glad I thought of it, but I think um, Amy is the one who thought of this. Is that right, Amy? Did you think of this? Oh, you didn't? Who did? Who did? Kyle? Oh, Derek did. Okay. Well, hat tip to Derek on this one. This is called Open Mic Calls. That means you can call in anytime you want to a place where you can leave a recording that will be used on our broadcast. If you go to our homepage under podcasts and live broadcast, you'll see the feature there for open mic calls. And let me just see if I can find the. Oh, here it is. Sorry about that. Uh, and the phone number for open mic calls, if you just want to dial it up and call, is 857-342-5787. That's 857-DIAL. STR 857-342-5787. And um, then just follow the prompts, or I don't know exactly how that works, but um, you can leave your call there. I'm just trying to let me set that over here. That's crazy. Okay. So I have sheets of <laughs> pages and pages of your calls. And for those of you who called in, I'm very thankful because this makes it so much easier for us to have a show where you can participate um, when I'm off schedule like I am now. I'll be going to ETS in November, and that's probably when this one will be aired. Uh, Evangelical Theological Society will will be doing Minneapolis Reality on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then Sunday I go to San Antonio, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and come back Thursday. So we miss that show. And then the next week, well, Thanksgiving, we'll still have a show on Thanksgiving week. And uh, we can use open mic calls for any of those times I'm out. December, I'm having some work done on my foot, so I might miss a show or two, and so this is what we do. And uh, so for those of you who contacted us in the past with your questions, I'm trying to do the oldest first, first in, first out, that kind of thing. And so that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, our first caller is Billy Marrer, and it's I hope I pronounced that right, M-A-U-R-E-R, and he wants to know a distinction between a few different words. Let's hear from Billy. What is the difference between rules, principles, guidelines, and policies? Thanks. Bye. <laughs> ah, that was short and sweet, wasn't it? To the point. Rules, principles, guidelines, and policies. I'm glad I looked at this question before I started because I had to think about it. These are very similar concepts, but I think I can make some distinctions, and maybe everyone won't agree with my uh, my distinctions, but that's okay. Um, rules are specific boundaries, all right? A rule is meant, is established when someone wants a specific behavior to happen or not to happen. So 
we have a rule in our house. Mm, I'm just thinking theoretically here because I'm not sure what kind of rules we really function in my own home. The rule is if you if you if you use it, wash it and put it away. Okay, you you take out some dishes or whatever. You make some stuff. You clean up your mess. Mess. Okay, leave it better than you found it. Is another way of putting that. Or bedtime is nine thirty, or cur- curf- curfew on weekends is ten thirty. Those are rules. Those are very precise, measurable boundaries. They are meant <clears throat> to guide and direct behavior in in very specific ways in very speci- specific um circumstances. So I was just thinking of Don Knotts, you know, from Andy of Mayberry. This is the way we do things here at The Rock, you know. And, uh, of course, The Rock is Alcatraz, and he's being a big timer there as he's telling people how to comport themselves in jail. He's giving the rules. None of this, none of that, none of the other thing. Okay, those are the rules. Specific boundaries. Uh, We see that, obviously, in Christianity. Do not steal. Okay, the next one, though, are principles, and, and um, I would say principles, now especially, and now I'm thinking in terms of of biblical concerns, although <clears throat> this could apply to other things, too. Principles are general concepts that are meant to guide us, general concepts. I actually wrote down general moral concepts, like be kind. It doesn't specify what kindness looks like in a given particular circumstance, uh, or you could say be polite, okay? That's the, that's the principle, be polite. But the rule might be say thank you whenever anyone hands you something, or if you bump into somebody, always say excuse me even if, if it's their fault, okay? So you've taken a general principle, be polite, and you've given it a specific application that you intend that person to pursue every single time that that takes place. That's the rule. All right. What about guidelines? I guess it's hard for me, it was hard for me to distinguish principles from guidelines because principles are types of guides, I guess. But maybe guidelines would be specific applications of principles. All right. Um, so we have a we have a well. Let's see. We have a principle at Stand to Reason, and the principle is, and this is a good one for business. Anybody in business should follow this principle. It's like the number one principle of business. When I think about it, maybe it shouldn't be number one. It's like right in top tier of necessary. So there's a lot of things that are really necessary. Be honest would be a principle for every business, right? But this is a little different, but it should be right up there in top tier. And that principle is always make it easy for people to give you money. Always make it easy for people to give you money. Have you ever noticed when you want to buy something on the internet, sometimes they make you sign in and make a uh, a password, right? Set up an account. What a bunch of—that's goofy, because when I that happens to me and it's just, it's a one off, right? I just want to buy one thing from you. Why should I have to set up an account and then record a password and all that other stuff and give you all my private information? Blah 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 blah. I just want to buy something from you. Now some places will let you do that or will um, 
a lot, let you be a guest, and then you just go through the regular procedures. But if they require you to register, they're making it hard for you to give you money. Okay, I go into big box stores and I look around. I can't find anybody to help me. Sometimes when I ask, finally get somebody to ask them, uh, is this product the right product for my application? They start reading the instructions. I can read the instructions myself. I can read. I want your insight. I want to give you money. Will you help me give you money? Stand to reason, when we first started out, we always sent a, an SASE. That's a self-addressed stamped envelope. When we sent something out, a request for money, we always made it easy for them to write a check and put it in there. People don't use checks much anymore, but that was one way we did that. So now we have a, uh, a specific application of a principle. The principle is always make it easy for people to give you money in the specific application. Here's our guidelines. Our guidelines are we always send out a self-addressed stamped envelope during the time in the history of standard reason that was important. So maybe that's a distinction. I think principles and guidelines are, you know, kind of close. All right. Rules are specific boundaries, specific do's and don'ts. Principles, general concepts by which you operate if you're talking about the Bible, moral concepts. Or uh, a principle, you have a regular time of of uh, interaction, reading Scripture and prayer with God. Now, that can be um, uh, expressed in different ways. And one guideline might be every morning when you get up as as a as a guideline when you wake up before you go to bed at night. Doesn't have to be a rule. <clears throat> Doesn't have to be a hard set boundary, but it could be a guideline. The last one is policy. Okay, now policies are this is a little easier because <clears throat> excuse me, policies are generally organizational. That would include political. This is a policy issue, for example. Policy is a is a a boundary set in advance to simplify decision making. It is a boundary set in advance to simplify decision making. So uh, sometimes we get requests to um, as speakers to stay at the home of the host. That saves them some money for the hotel. But our general policy is we don't do that. I mean, maybe exceptions because there's liabilities that are involved and risks and uh, exposure uh, to charges potentially, that we don't want to have to worry about. So when somebody says, is this okay if we do this, we can say, well, we have a policy against that. And what that means is the decision has been made beforehand. When you say this is our policy, then you don't have to make the decision every single time. Okay. Uh, now, administrations have this. Organizations have policies. Administrations have policies. Parties, political parties, have policies, and this helps. Okay, here's a policy. Um, no negotiation with terrorists. All right, there's a policy. Now, of course, that was one that we used to always adhere to because we didn't want to encourage terrorism and uh, making concessions to that. Now, that's a principle policy that's been abandoned largely of late, but nevertheless, once you make the policy, then you know, we just got a ransom note or we just got a request for negotiations with this terrorist. And we say, we have a policy. We don't negotiate. 
end of issue. What it does is it allows you to address difficult circumstances before they come up. That's the value of a policy. So um, rules are boundaries, specific, explicit boundaries of, of specific sort regarding specific behaviors. Principles are general moral, general concepts to guide behavior, and uh, oftentimes those are moral concepts, that, but they are not specific, they're general, to which you need to make specific application, and uh, specific application of your principles might be called guidelines, and policies are decisions that you make about things in advance to simplify decision-making in the moment. So there you have it, Billy Marr. I hope that's helpful. That was a good question. Um, how about Matt here? Uh, he wants to understand my understanding of Christian nationalism. Let's hear what he has to say. Matt? Hi, Greg. This is Matt from Philadelphia. Thank you very much for taking my question today. Uh, I had originally heard you on the White Horse Inn mm. back in 2009 when mm. you first spoke about your book, uh, Tactics, and I was truly impressed with the engaging strategies uh, you uh, speak about in the book and with Rod Rosenblatt and uh, Kim Riddlebarger and Mike Horton. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a, just a tremendous episode, and I really, really enjoyed mm. it. Thank you. Um, I then met you a couple of years ago, actually, at the Reality Student Conference in 2022 outside of Philadelphia um, and was definitely encouraged, obviously, by the number of people, especially younger adults and youth that were there and mm. were eager to learn mm -hmm. about um, apologetics and uh, was really encouraged by that. And also congratulations on 30 years at uh, mm. STR. Thank you. My question centers around the term Christian nationalism. Uh, I've been hearing a ton about this phrase everywhere on social media, uh, but it seems that whenever I look within that movement, they either can't define what it is or they have a lot of difficulty giving a bare bones definition of what it is. I like to think uh, that the definition lies in getting someone elected in Washington, D.C., probably the president, maybe Congress. Uh, that can pass laws that have a biblical understanding. But to me, that sounds completely contrary to what Scripture says in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. So my question to you is, what do you think this term means, and how can we engage those that hold fast to this term while seemingly forgetting what the gospel mandate mm -hmm. is that Jesus gave in Matthew 28? I hope you have a great day, and I look forward to your answer. Take care. Wow, uh, thank you, Matt. Lots of nice things that um, that you you mentioned there. And um, uh, one of the difficulties for me is that the concept of Christian nationalism is uh, is a vague one. And I I have not done a deep dive into this. I've just heard it here and there. And most of the time, I hear it pejoratively. Um, used. That is, it's like, kind of like the word fundamentalist, okay? You don't want to be a fundamentalist because those fundamentalists are bad. Now, of course, when you think about the notion of fundamentalism in Christianity, that term was birthed in the early 20th century as a way of expressing those who are defending the fundamentals, the foundational concepts 
of Christianity when those notions were under attack by liberal scholarship of the late 19th century and early 20th century. And then the advent, very aggressive advent of evolution, evolutionary thinking, and uh, the fundamentalists were trying to hold their ground of the basics, the foundational issues of Christianity. But it's gotten kind of a negative connotation. And I, I, I'm not exactly sure where the phrase Christian nationalism came from. But I will tell you my suspicion. It is, uh, it is a term that was developed by critics of Christianity, seeing Christians being politically involved and wishing to have a political influence in our culture. Okay, and so what they have, have um, I think, mistakenly claimed is that what Christians are trying to do is set up a kind of theocracy in this country where Christian ethics are reigning, all right, and Christian rules are reigning. And some would view this as a violation of the separation of church and state, which, of course, it's nothing of the kind because the First Amendment restricts the state, not the citizen. (laughs) The citizen can vote for whoever he wants, for whatever reason he wants, and can seek to have whatever morality he wants or thinks is appropriate ensconced in law. That's different from religious um, denominations and theological concerns, all right? So um, here is my confusion a little bit, Matt, when you were saying that I understand it to be trying to elect people that will reflect Christian, I think you said Christian ethics um, in in government, and I thought you were going to applaud that and then take exception with what seems to be a distortion from secularists about that notion and a complaint about that notion. But instead, what you said was that it was seemed contrary— to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to build disciples, okay? I, 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 the way you characterized Christian natu- nationalism, I, I don't see how that's contrary to building disciples. It's a, it, I mean, it strikes me as a false dichotomy. We do have the Great Commission, but fulfilling the Great Commission um, also leaves lots of room for doing other things, and many would characterize it as not just the uh, the biblical Great Commission, but the uh, the mandate for the Great Com- but also a cultural mandate too. That is to be fr- to, to be salt and light in our culture. So think of people like William Wilberforce, and William Wilberforce, um, British MP, member of Parliament, who who turned away from um, the the option of pursuing as a Christian a profession in ministry, and to some degree at the encouragement of um, John John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and was a slaveholder himself and then became a Christian, and a pastor there in London as a contemporary, a contempor- a contemporary of, uh, of William Wilberforce. And uh, Wilberforce instead went into politics. And his purpose in politics was twofold. It was to end the slave trade and to reform manners, is the way he put it. Now, what he meant by end the slave trade is pretty straightforward. This he accomplished. It took his whole life to do it. 
but a reformation of manners was to increase the level of goodness in society. And during this time, you have the the, the, um, deleterious effect of the Industrial Revolution taking place in the 19th century. And with, in spite of all the good that it brought, it had all kinds of downsides as well. Okay, and um, Dickens would write famously about some of those, and and this is part of what's going on in the Christmas Carol. Well, this is the same time when Wilberforce, early twentieth, early nineteenth century, is working to end slavery and to reform manners, to make, to to put together all these organizations and these enterprises that are meant to help the poor and feed and clothe and house and orphanages, and he had gazillions of enterprises going. In addition to working tirelessly uh, with, with uh, decreasing health, facing those challenges to end the slave trade, which is what he did. He not only ended the slave trade, that came first, but then he ended slavery entirely, abolished slavery, and it was against tremendous odds. Now, <clears throat> that was part of a cultural mandate. What is it that the Christian is supposed to do with regards to his fellow man? We are to love God, but we're also to love others. All right, love God and love others. Those are the two great commandments. And so this strikes me as entailing making a difference for virtue and good in the culture. Right now we have uh, the cause celeb, uh, one of them, is uh, the concern about sexual slavery, which is really important. And many secularists have climbed on board on that, and so many Christians have as well, because this is a serious problem. All right, it's not discipleship. Uh, it may lead to instances of discipleship, but it's not discipleship. It is a way of reforming manners, to use Wilberforce's language. And um, I, I don't see the problem there. Now, if what a person is trying to accomplish is to have virtuous laws passed in Congress instead of unvirtuous laws, which is what we see happening all the time now, then what's wrong with that? Now, someone who is on the other side, who does not like the Christian point of view or the moral influence of Christianity in lawmaking, which is their civic right, and I think their moral responsibility, do not withhold good from him who to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. That's in Proverbs chapter 3. We have a moral responsibility to do this. There's more I could read in Proverbs and other passages, of course, but the uh, you, you get that point. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And so when Christians are trying to restore the virtue that has been lost in our culture because of the passage of laws that encourage evil instead of encouraging good, and often even punish good instead of punishing evil, then it's appropriate for people of conscience, regardless of whether they're regenerate or not, but certainly the regenerate body of Christ, to step up in the gap and and try to see righteousness done. Now, back to Proverbs, and I don't have any particular one in front of me, but there's a whole bunch of them, turning there now to see if one jumps out, but there's a whole bunch of them that refer to the state of the land or the country when the wicked rule. And when the righteous rule, 
there is it's it's totally different. All right, um, and there are many passages about that. There's a whole chapter actually that uh, pertains to that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just paging through it. Uh, that that speaks to those things, but. Um, so, can't find it. You can look through Proverbs yourself and find it, because Proverbs is constantly say, saying that uh, when wicked rules, the wicked rule, bad for people. When the righteous rule, good for people. Well, what does that mean to rule? That means exercise legal authority, telling people what they can and can't do. And when the legal authority tells people they should do bad things and they shouldn't do good things, well, this is upside down. It's topsy-turvy. And um, bad befalls the country who does that. All right, we're Christians. So what do we do? We try to have an influence. Because we have suffrage, we got the vote, we have an influence, we use our vote, we maybe run for office so that we will pass legislation that respect reflects virtue, not vice. Okay, and of course, when we do that, we're pejoratively labeled, and I think Christian nationalism is an example of that most of the time. Now, there might be people who want to return this, or not return, but to make the—because it never was a theocracy— it was informed by Judeo-Christian principles, and that's been really good for us. And most Christians who are having an influence in politics want that to be the case again. They don't want to create a theocracy. A very small amount of people do. But what the left, characteristically, wants to claim is we're dangerous because we want to set up a theocracy, and that theocracy is called Christian nationalism. So here's my sense, and again, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I think that is a phrase that is used pejoratively of Christians who want to have an appropriate impact in culture through law for virtue and not for vice. Nothing wrong with that. Actually, part of our obligation as a cultural mandate, not just the spiritual mandate of the Great Commission. It's not an either-or. Frankly, it should be a both-and, because if we are just trying to save souls and we are not making a difference in the culture to get rid of evil—and again, I've given examples, and I could give more of where that's the case—then uh, then we are not living a robust Christian life, it seems to me. And history is a record of the, the, the improvement of culture and, and government and therefore culture, and nations indeed, has resulted when people like William Wilberforce, just for one example, has decided to make sure that his Christian values influence the way people live in a culture. And the result in one famous instance for Wilberforce is the ending of slavery. And who could take exception with that? I think the great moral issue now that we face is abortion. I mean, keep in mind that 2,977 people died on 9-11, which is less 
than the average number of babies that were murdered every single day <clears throat> for almost 50 years under Roe versus Wade. Every single day, over 3,000. Okay, so there's there's my my thoughts on Christian nationalism. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break here, and I'll I'll scan some of the other ones. Decide where I want to go next. Greg Kokel here for Stand the Reason. Stay with us. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. STR outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Greg Kokel back with you here, Stand of Reason. And uh, let's see, uh, I want to talk uh, or hear from uh, Farley. And uh, and this has to do about judgments on others, particularly Christians. Okay, Farley, what's on your mind? Hi, Greg. Uh, Farley here from New Zealand. Um, we actually just finished a session with John Noyes, um, one of the STRS guys. Um and actually, I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, we just had a message over the weekend around uh, Christians making judgment um, about other Christians or on other Christians. Um, just wanted to have your perspective and, I guess, a, a better biblical understanding on how and when Christians can make judgments, um, whether or not um, we are meant to be or we're not meant to be making judgments on other about other Christians. Um, but yeah, we'd love to hear your your thoughts about that. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Farley, and I'm glad you enjoyed John Noyes. He was out there for like two weeks or something, and you guys worked him to death, which was good for him and good for you guys, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, uh, thank you for that feedback. And um, I'm a little curious about. Of course, you didn't get any, any detail, Farley, about the <clears throat> content or approach or concern that was expressed about 
Christians making judgments on other Christians, all right? Uh, let me just make a couple of uh, broad observations about judgment. Um, judgment is condemned in the New Testament in some ways or some circumstances, and it is commanded in others. Paul says, um, uh, do not participate in the evil deeds of darkness, but even expose them. Jesus says, judge with a righteous judgment. And actually, when you see Jesus, um, you you actually see um, <laughs> an incredibly judgmental person in appropriate ways. <clears throat> it's curious that at his trial, when he was slapped, he did not turn the other cheek the way people think that Jesus had in mind in the in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. Jesus asked for an accounting. If if I if I spoke wrong, then bear witness to the wrong. If I did not, then why did you slap me? That's Jesus. Pretty good. Questions, by the way. So um, that is a, a that is an implicit judgment against the person who slapped him inappropriately, right? And um, I mean, Jesus, when he talks about turning the other's cheek, I think he had something else in mind, all right? Uh, so he wasn't contradicting himself. He was contradicting an understanding some people have of what he meant in the Sermon on the Mount. But that passage, or that sermon, is where we find the famous passage, judge not, or rather do not judge. This is the first verse, first couple words of chapter 7, but he doesn't stop there. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Okay, now that's key, by the way, to this passage. What Jesus is faulting in Matthew 7 is a type of hypocritical judgment. And notice how he how he closes this comment. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, and then he says famously, do not give what is holy to dogs, do not throw your pearls before swine, which, of course, <laughs> requires a judgment to know the the dogs and the swine and what to do in that circumstance. So, what Jesus is condemning there is a type of hypocritical, condescending judgment hypocritical in which people are making a judgment against others when they themselves are guilty of much greater things. No humility at all. And he says, hey, deal with your own thing first, then you can deal with the other persons. Okay? So these are general comments. Judging is not universally condemned in Scripture. Uh, it needs to be done appropriately. There are appropriate ways and inappropriate ways. It is either uh, it is either affirmed or condemned, depending on the circumstances. Okay, that's the first thing. 
But the second thing, uh, Farley, has to do with the particular circumstance. I know in New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, most of the Christians are charismatic. Now, that's not a problem in itself, although it does, I think, uh, lend itself to error, that certain types of error that are uh, others who are not charismatic are not so vulnerable to, okay? But um, uh, the, the, um, the curious thing for me is that— um, and this is what this is just my information about New Zealand. <clears throat> I have noticed among charismatic types in this country when the excesses are addressed, there is a complaint that is raised, and the complaint is you shouldn't be touching God's anointed. Okay, that's the kind of like the spiritual way of saying don't criticize our Christian leaders. All right. Now, this is an abuse of the text, first of all, because when the text talks about not touching God's anointed, and we find this especially in 1 Samuel and maybe some other cases, first and, uh, let's see, maybe first and second Samuel, the time of David and Saul, um, the touching that's in view there is execution. <laughs> you killed that, you killed the king. You touched God's anointed, David said. Or, with regards to Saul, I didn't—I refused to touch God's anointed. I refused to take advantage of a circumstance when I could have killed Saul, who was seeking to kill me, and I didn't do that. All right? So, um, so there is—when uh, you go to the text and you look at the use of that phrase, it's talk, don't kill people. He isn't saying, the text isn't saying, we should not criticize people who are Christians. And in fact, in the case of David, David didn't touch in the biblical sense God's anointed Saul. He didn't kill him when he had the opportunity, but he roundly criticized Saul for his immoral behavior in pursuit of David. And so criticism of a spiritual leader, even one that is you know, literally anointed by God. Saul was an example of that. That's not wrong. Now, it might not be accurate, but the action itself is not wrong. Just because somebody is criticizing a leader doesn't mean that their criticism is a sound criticism, but it's it's not wrong simply to to hold a leader accountable for his behaviors. And generally, this is what's going on in some Pentecostal circles— that there are leaders that are living in or teaching in excess or illicitly or incorrectly, and they are being called to account for their living or their teaching. And then someone says, well, you should not be touching God's anointed, i.e., you shouldn't be criticizing another Christian, especially a leader. Well, this is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, um, Paul criticizes um, people by name. Look at Second Timothy. Uh, let's see, Demas has deserted me, ha- uh, having loved the present world. Or doesn't it, isn't that where he also talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander have done me, or, or the coppersmith or whatever? There's another one. They did me great harm. Avoid such men as these. Right? So there's occasions where where individuals who are dangerous to the faith are actually being criticized publicly and by name 
by Paul himself. Now, recently, I've been, uh, and stand the reason, we have been critical of, Stan, of uh, Andy Stanley, and rightly so. He is teaching things publicly that are not sound, and he needs to be called out for that, just like any other teacher needs to be called out for those things. And if I were teaching what people think are not, are, is not sound, then it's, it's certainly not inappropriate for them to call me out on that particularly when my teaching is public. Now, it doesn't mean that they're correct in their assessment. That's another question. But the act of calling out a Christian teacher um, and criticizing them, or, or not just a Christian teacher, but someone in a minor capacity who's teaching error, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's obligatory under some circumstances, because I think it's in Titus chapter 1 where Paul talks about the elders have to be able to defend sound doctrine because there are people in the local church who are teaching falsehood, and they must be silenced. That's Paul's words. Pretty strong. Pretty aggressive. So um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not troubled at all biblically when, when judgments are made about other Christians, when judgments per se— I am only troubled when the judgments are not sound, or when they are um, ingraciously or um, they they are made in an inappropriate fashion. Um, now it doesn't it doesn't mean you can't get really bugged at some Christians who are teaching nonsense, dangerous nonsense. Uh, Jesus got bugged, Paul got bugged, you know, and uh, God gets bugged. The prophets got bugged. All right. Um, but uh, we don't want to be dehumanizing in the way we do it. We want to stay on point and make the point. So I, I just—when I, I just, uh, Christians are in error, theological or moral, then it is appropriate to judge them. Now, that judgment um, probably should be made with the Christian in question— if the issue is more private. If the issue is public, then it should it's totally appropriate to address the issue in the same public range that the uh that the issue um involves. So like if you have a problem with a disciplinary problem with your child at school, and you think your child has been inappropriately disciplined, then you talk with those involved with that, and you that's a case for that in situation. But you, you know, um, you want to be careful <laughs> bringing all those issues to people who have no concern in the matter and just berating individuals and judging them when the judgment does nothing, no, no good except for create division. And, uh, uh, bad attitudes towards others. So, okay, there's there's some guidelines for you. Um, let's talk with Larry, or hear from Larry Kent, and he has a question about John fifteen twenty four, which he can ask it, but as I'm reading it, I'm not sure if I can answer it. Let's take a shot at that. Hello, Greg. This is Larry from Kissimmee, Florida. Thanks so much for your ministry to us. Appreciate it so much. John 15, 24 says, If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. 
Does this mean that people who haven't heard the word will be judged solely based on how they've responded to their conscience? Thanks so much. God bless. Uh, Thank you uh, for that, Larry. I'm kind of pausing here because... Actually, I'm looking at... Oh, this is... I'm in the wrong... (laughs) No wonder I can't find it. I'm in the wrong gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... Oh, here it is. Okay, John 15, 24. Let me read it. Um, Here we go. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they both have seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now, my marginal rendering for the word sin here, it says, i.e. guilt. In other words, they would not be guilty. Let me read just above it, because I think this is um, a little bit of a hard passage to make sense out of. I don't think it means what um, you are suggesting, Larry, the possibility, the possible meaning, just because it creates too many difficulties for other passages. Um, and if I were to agree, well, they'll just be judged by their conscience. The problem is they will, that won't excuse them. Um, in Romans 1 and 2, I think the phrase, they are without excuse, is used twice, once in Romans 1 and then in 2. Yeah, here it is. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So there are two places in Romans where people are said not to have excuse. One in the the fact that God the Father is revealed to everyone, maybe not the Son, but certainly the Father. And so they are responsible to the revelation of the Father. And uh, their conscience, keeping their own conscience, isn't going to help because they don't follow their own conscience. Even the things that they think are wrong, human beings still do. We are not consistent. Okay, that's not surprising at all. All right, so I'm just going to start a little bit further above. He's talking about persecution for the Christians, for the disciples, um, and those who have kept his word. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Okay? Um, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have guilt or sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates the Father also. Now, uh, so a couple of observation here. Oh, it continues, actually. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin or guilt. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Um, and I... I Here's my best shot at this one. Um, There is going to be a different kind of judgment for those who had less revelation. This is clear from a number of passages. When Jesus is in Bethsaida, 
He said, if the miracles that occurred here in Bethsaida among you had occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah, people would have repented. Therefore, the judgment for you will be greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are other passages that imply the same thing. And so basically what Jesus is saying is there's greater responsibility with, and greater guilt with greater revelation. Now, who has had the greatest revelation of God? Those who beheld the Son working miracles, doing signs before them, verifying his messianic office, and in many cases, the best they could do is attribute his works to Satan. And that was the place where Jesus said that uh, they have sinned by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and therefore there was no forgiveness for that sin. Now, whatever that sin entails and why there's no forgiveness is a separate issue, but the, notice the point that that being present and seeing and then rejecting is is it carries with it the most serious condemnation uh, in scripture there's i've not seen any more serious condemnation than that and so this could be what jesus is talking about they would not have sin uh of rejection of him for those reasons now it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have sin they just wouldn't have that big giant sin against them they would not have that guilt against them. They'd have guilt for other sins, but not for that one. And uh, that's the best I can make of it, because the text says, for all have sinned and fallen short, short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So everybody is under the sentence of sin, Romans 1 again. Um, those who um, who just have awareness of God through what he's created, the Father, what he's created, and then those who are just taking counsel from their own conscience, he said, well, if that's the route you're going to go, you're still guilty. You're still guilty. <clears throat> okay, so that's um, that's the best I can do with that passage. Thanks for the question. Um, all right, this is from a nine-year-old, Anila, uh, Aniela. Aniela. I'm not sure I get her right, name right, but uh, Aniela, if that's—I'm just pronouncing all the vowels like Spanish pronunciation, A-N-I-E-L-A. -E um, hope I said it right. Aniela, go ahead. What's on your mind? My name is Aniela Schillens, and I'm nine years old. So my question is, what do you do if somebody says to you that God's not real? Okay. Uh, thank you for the question. And um, there's a lot of people who say that. <laughs> and I have two questions, and, the, and most people can probably anticipate what this is because of what I've said before, Anela. And uh, that is, what do you mean God's not real? Some people think that, that only physical things are real. And actually, even Christians talk this way. So the soul is not physical, so it's not real in the sense that they think of it 
of, of something being real. Only, only tangible, physical things that you can see and touch and hear and taste and smell, that kind of stuff, only those things are real. But, uh, but that's a mistake, because uh, a thing could be real if, um, even if you can't taste it or see it. I mean, we, you have thoughts, right? But just be, you can't taste your thoughts, you can't see your thoughts, you can't hear your thoughts, you know your thoughts, but you don't know them by any of those other ways. And so um, some people might mean that God is not physical, so therefore he's not real, because only physical things are real. So I'd like to find out what they mean when they say God's not real. And then I want to know why they think God is not real. Why do they say God's not real? So I can't go any further in answering the challenge they give me unless I know the reasons why they think God's not real. Now, like I just said a moment ago, some people think that God's not real because he's not physical. But then I offered you that we have thoughts that aren't physical, and those are real, because we experience them. We know them. We know what we're thinking. So that's not going to work. And that's why I want to know what they mean by God's not real and why they think that God's not real. Why do you think that's the case? All right. So those are two questions that you can ask on Niela. I'll, we have time, I think, for one more real quickly. Um, let's go uh, to Lars on Job. Hello, Greg. My name is Lars, and I wanted to ask about the story of Job. It's kind of one of the main reasons why I just couldn't no longer believe in the Bible. I couldn't except that a loving God would do such a horrible thing to, to Job and to his family. I I just, I need someone to explain this to me. I, I can't believe in a, I can't worship a God like that. Okay, thank you so much, Lars, for your honest uh, question there. And uh, I can... Uh, <laughs> Just in a, take. I want to. I got three minutes here, so I just want to take exception with the way that you put this, and that is, I cannot accept a loving God who could do such a horrible thing to Job and his family. Actually, God didn't do it; He allowed it to happen. Now, that may not be a significant distinction for you. I get that. The fact is, there are all kinds of things that are that God allows to happen in the world. And in my personal opinion is that Job is not an historical account. Um, it is actually a midrash. It's a story, as you put it, that is meant to explain something about the real world, and there's a lesson in it, okay? So on my take, God didn't even do that. But it won't help because there certainly are all kinds of things that God allows in the actual world and we don't understand why he allows it. And what we get from the account of Job is we get a whole bunch of explanation from uh, Job's friends that is not helpful. It's not true. It reflects a faulty theology. And what Job, Job's friends say is, you're suffering because you deserve it. You were not righteous. And God is 
a just God and would not allow something like that to happen to you unless you were guilty. Now, this is simply bad theology, and Jesus corrects that theology, and we know since then that that's not the, that there are innocent people who suffer because of they live in a fallen world, or even because the devil acts in such a way as to bring suffering to them, and God does not intervene. That's the message of Job. And Job's question—well, it's, it's the situation of Job, and the question is, why don't you intervene? And Job is told by God that I know best. You don't. I know things that you don't. And therefore, um, my decisions about these things are going to be not completely understood by you, but it doesn't mean that I am not God. Now, the analog to this, it seems to me, is parents and children, because children don't understand what parents understand, and parents give directives that children think are ridiculous and burdensome and, and, and onerous and painful and difficult. And why would my dad or my mom allow me to do that? But, of course, we as parents know better. But we also know that explaining it to the kids isn't going to make sense to them. And that's kind of the lesson of Job. I don't think God did this to them, but certainly he allows things to happen to all kinds of people for his own purposes. And by the way, I don't know what the alternative is. The alternative is that if there is a God, then he, what? Well, then the alternative is there is no God, because the God that you want, Lars, is one that will never allow these kinds of things to happen to people, yet they happen all the time. Okay, that's it. I wish I could say more about this, Lars. Thank you for the question. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.